Welcome to The Craft. I'm your host, Mae Globus. This podcast is a collection of intimate conversations on artistry, mastery, and life with talented, passionately curious creatives and entrepreneurs. Most are dear friends, some are those I've admired from afar. I hope you enjoy these conversations, this exploration of the humanity that connects all of us as much as I do having them. Thank you for being here and for listening. This episode is sponsored by Happy Fox Health, a natural supplement brand focused on sea moss, a marine algae that has 92 out of 102 essential nutrients that your body needs to thrive and regenerate. I've used a number of their products and found it's really given me clarity of mind. Visit happyfoxhealth.com and use promo code THECRAFT for an exclusive 15 to 20% discount off your first product purchase. Randa Saloom has a will to her that's unstoppable and an insatiable desire to keep learning. She's had many career chapters in her life, from respected fashion blogger and creative agency owner to now founder of secondhand and vintage clothing shop, Collective Will. She was born to immigrant parents, her mother from Jordan and her father from Lebanon, who met and fell in love in Vancouver. Artistic and entrepreneurial, they were contrary to typical Middle Eastern parents. Randa and her brother were given the freedom to explore things that gave them passion and were never put in boxes. This sense of fierce independence and hustle are still core to the way she operates today. After graduating from the Art Institute of Vancouver, her fashion career launched quickly, from assisting stylists and visual merchandising at Club Monaco, to creating content at an online magazine and her blog, to launching IC Noise and CL Creative, working at Robson Street's BIA, and finally founding Collective Will, where she's found her new stride. In this conversation, we explore how childhood bullying had affected her deeply growing up, her career journey through almost all facets of the fashion industry, how being independent has been both a blessing and a curse, the fascinating evolution of her relationship to sustainability, what it means to be seen and heard, and much, much more. Please enjoy this moving conversation with a bold, passionate, and inspiring connector of people, Randa Saloon. Randa Saloon. Welcome to The Craft. Thank you so much, May. I'm so excited to be here. Yes, I'm excited to have this conversation with you. I feel like you and I have known each other for a long time, actually. Yes. A number of years. And I was trying to do the pinpointing of when we met. Yeah. And I feel like it was in our respective fashion days. Yes, definitely. Yes. And I think it was mostly eventing. Oh, yeah. Where we'd run into each other. Yeah. And then we've just kept in touch over our evolutions in our various careers and lives over over the last few years. Yes, we have. And uh, it's so it's been amazing to see you evolve and grow and continue to follow your passions. And so for me, this is very exciting to to dive deeper into Thank all of you. that. That's really sweet of you to say. You know, there's been so many people that are in my circle and around me and watching almost through you know a looking glass, so to speak. And I'm inside of it, so I don't see what everyone else sees. Um, but for you to say that, that's very, very special. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. So let's take it back. Let's go back to childhood. Okay. Tell me about your family. Tell me about growing up. Your mom is from Jordan. Yes. And your dad is from Lebanon. Yes. And my brother and I were born here in Canada, in Vancouver. Um, and my parents met here. So my mom was in, my mom must have been like 19, 20. And my dad was in his 30s. They're 13 years apart. So. Ah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and uh, they met and got married really fast. 
And uh, my dad just knew she was the one. And he's such a hopeless romantic. I think that's where I get it from. <laughs> uh, my brother as well. Uh, we're all very much romantics. Um, and so I grew up in Surrey, technically. But most of my career happened in Vancouver. Um, and my upbringing was really special. You know, I don't think a lot of people got to have the upbringing that I did because my parents were so fluid in the way that they raised us. And, you know, they're both immigrants. They're both very hardworking. I think that's, you know, the age-old tale. But uh, I'm very much an observer. And I watched. And my parents really weren't the ones to kind of sit us down and have a conversation. You know, we're going to talk about finances. We're going to talk about sex. We're going to talk about all these things. It was more like they also observed us and saw where they needed to speak to us. And through my observations of them, I would learn everything from finances to what a relationship should look like. Or, you know, my dad, he's an artist and a baker. Um, and my mom, she went to school for, you know, everything from law and income tax and accounting. And she was in immigration for a bit. And um, I was always looking at them and seeing, oh, okay, like I can do anything I wanted and it doesn't have to just be one thing. Um, and because my dad is more creative, he really um, kind of held my hand through nourishing like the more creative side of myself. And because my mom is so analytical and very business focused, that's where I clearly got that. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm a very good blend of both of them. And, um, you know, I, I grew up in, I was born in 87. So I grew up in the late 80s, the 90s. And I think everyone around that time had a very similar time where, you know, our parents would just let us go outside all day and they trusted us and we just hung out with kids on the block and had a really great time. Um, and that was probably like my very first time having to be out on my own making friends and making connections. And that never really stopped uh, throughout my years. But I went to about, I went to four different elementary schools, but five times technically, I went to one twice. Um, and although I was able to, you know, be okay talking to people, because I was, you know, kids, kids don't know, they just, they make friends with everybody. But um, my elementary school years were like, I didn't really like them. Mm. It was full of bullying and missed connections. And because I was moved around so much because I was being bullied, or because I just had to move for reasons of you know, my parents opened a bakery in one neighborhood and so that I could be closer to them. There's an elementary school right there. I ended up going there. And I wasn't able to really, like, make solid friendships. Um, and I think at those ages, you really, that's like your time, you know, to establish connections and establish relationships that kind of, like, carry you through into high school and then into your adult years. But because I had to be a bit of a loner, it didn't really facilitate that learning at that time. But when I got into high school, I went to one high school for the entire time. And that's where I really learned how to make solid connections. Mm -hmm. um, and then that never stopped when I went into adulthood. I feel like my purpose in life is to make connections and to connect other people with things and with each other. Um, and... I guess from my lack thereof of having it as a kid, it just kind of naturally morphed into this today. So interesting how something like that turned into your superpower, which is something that you do quite a bit now is, is, is the connecting and, and is something that you're really good at. 
Um, so it's interesting how that has come from adversity yes. at, a, at a younger age. And so your parents were really, I found when we were talking in our, our pre-chat, it's so interesting because they're both from the, the Middle East, yeah. yet there was a sense of, and you know, when I talk to guests that have parents from, you know, different cultures and Asia or South Asia or, or the Middle East, um, they want their kids to be in careers that are very kind of straight and narrow right. and be a doctor, be a lawyer. But your parents gave you sort of the freedom to follow those passions, which is kind of rare. Yeah, definitely. For that culture. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it didn't mean that they didn't have sights on me being something high powered and, you know, that paid a lot of money that could give me a sustainable lifestyle. But I think they more so saw what we were good at and what we enjoyed, and that's what they nourished. You know, I was allowed to decorate my room however I wanted, whenever I wanted. If I told them I wanted to paint it pistachio green or purple, they would just go buy the paint and then they would do it. If I wanted to paint my closets, you know, covered in strawberries with acrylic paint, if I wanted to completely paint my desk with acrylic paint, they had no problem just letting me do it. And then with my, my brother, he wanted to be a mechanic his whole life, and they loved that about him, and he was really good at it, so they nourished that about him. Mm. But as I got older, I started to obviously you know, have my own sense of direction of what I wanted to do, and I, I did want to have those more stable roles, like being a psychologist or being a lawyer, and I think it's just because I loved arguing that I thought I'd be great at it. My parents thought that I'd be great at it, too. Um, but then as you develop and you become an adult and your own person and you realize that you don't want to do those things and you end up going to school and school is not what you had expected it to be, um, I started to come into my own and realize that what I wanted to do was not something so stable and it was a career in fashion, but I didn't know what that career really looked like. Um, and although my parents are very liberal and they nurtured what we wanted to do, whatever that may be, they didn't see a, a future in fashion. And that just came from, you know, just a basic sense of you don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. And so they said there's no future in fashion. You can't make money in fashion. And I'm not really sure what their sense of what my job would have been. Um, and so at one point I had went to school. I unrolled myself from school without telling them. And I said I wasn't going to go to school until I could go for what I wanted to go for. And I think there's a Although they're liberal, there is a traditional sense about them. And I think that comes from what will family and friends think, mm. you know. Um, I don't also have, just wanting stability for your children. They just wanted yeah. the best for us, mm -hmm. and I can't fault them for that. But I really want – I knew what I wanted to do, and I've always been that way. And I'm very – you know, I'm a Taurus. I am very strong-headed, and um, eventually they – they understood that listen like she's not going to do what we're saying she's going to do what she wants to do and if she wants to go up end up in fashion then we just have to nurture that side of her as well mm -hmm. you know she's no longer a kid mm -hmm. we have to just kind of like take our hands off of this one right right I'd love to get to know your parents a little bit more individually yeah. so how would you describe your dad and then how would you describe <laughs> your mom I know your dad is an artist he's an oil oil oh, painter yes. right? acrylic oil very talented mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, growing up, our house always smelled like two things. It was cars, 
because of my brother working in the garage and um, oil paints and paint thinner. <laughs> I mean, that's probably not the best thing for a child to grow up with, but my dad was painting and um, he used the basement for that sort of craft and he would paint for the family. And when he came to Canada, one of his first jobs was working in a gallery and he had to paint like some were something like you know 10 paintings in a day and then the owner of the gallery would just sell them mm. there are people out there that have my dad's paintings that have no idea you know and he didn't sign any of them either so they're just out there mm. but he would kind of try to steer me down a direction of art and I think I didn't want to do it because he kept asking me to do it you know, he would, do you want to paint? No, no, no. Like I'm good. And I think it's also because I was scared for, you know, I would say even upwards of like up to five years ago and I'm 35 now, I was scared to do something if I didn't think I'd be good at it. And he's so talented. Like, how could you, how could I amount to doing what he's doing? You know, he's a, an expert. Um, and then one day I said, I must've been like maybe 10. I said, can you teach me how to paint? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Of course. <laughs> and so he sketched out a Mickey Mouse image and he did paint by numbers for oh, me. That is awesome. I remember the feeling of finishing that and I used oil paints and I just remember the feeling of finishing it and him saying that looked really great. And I kept it for very many years, um, although it was paint by numbers, but it was still really good. <laughs> Um, and, uh, you know, he also wanted me to kind of be in the kitchen cause he was a baker and that's another type of craft and art. Um, but again, I just like, I wanted to do what I wanted to do. I didn't want to do it just because someone asked me, but now as an adult, like I love baking and I recently had my dad teach me how to make baklava. Yes. He was making batches during the pandemic and he you were was. helping him sell it. Yeah. You know, my dad, even until this age, he's in his seventies and he, he wishes that he had taught painting, um, but unfortunately that didn't become a reality for him. But he's an amazing baker and obviously they don't have their bakery anymore so people couldn't purchase their baked goods. But I wanted to give my dad something and it turned into me saying, can you teach me how to make baklava and him teaching me and it turned out really well and I shared it on my stories and I said, you know, if I just posted this on my Instagram stories and said that you were taking orders, I'm sure people would order. My parents are very much the kind of like, do it and let's see what happens. And so they were both like, okay, yeah, let's do it. You know, five orders, why not? We ended up getting like 120 dozen orders until wow. the end of the holiday and he was so happy and he was like 30 years old again, you know, just like, I'm so happy that I could have given that to him. Um, and my mom was helping kind of like facilitate packaging and wholesale and, and, and all that kind of good stuff. So her strengths more her on that strengths. sort of like the structured side. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so then with my mom, she was. My mom is just as strong, if not more so, than I am. Like, I don't know how this woman does everything that she does. It's very inspiring and it's very admirable. She, if she wants to do it, she's going to do it. And no one's going to tell her no. 
and she will figure things out. She once took apart a computer and put it back together because it was broken and she just she thought that she could do it herself or she knows more about tech than I do. She got a Twitter account way before I did, you know. She's always learning. Like my mom is a sponge. Um and I I think that's where I got that was my dad also worked full time while he did his crafts and he worked in the hospital, he worked for Pure later. My mom didn't have a role that was so nine to five. If she wanted to do it, she could do it. If she knew it would make her money, she would just charge. And she was also amazing when it came to collecting a community and kind of integrating that into what it is that she does. You know, when you're doing immigration and you're bringing people over from the Middle East into Canada, which is extremely admirable of her to do, um, you create community. And so I think that's probably my first sense of joining business and community. Mm. And I know that you said that you were a bit more of a shire kid, but you were also a hustler. Oh, my gosh. Yes. You were reselling McDonald's <laughs> toys when you were five or six years old. Yeah. <laughs> so you had, the, you had the hustle from a very young age. Yeah. When I was about five, I would take the Happy Meals toys that my that came in like the Happy Meal box that my mom would buy me and I'd sell them for a dollar to the other kids. And I don't know why I decided to do it, but I just knew that I needed money and there were ways to get money. And these were things that I no longer needed also. And they had a value. Um, I would also do uh, juice, but instead of having a stand, I would go door to door with cups and a glass uh, pitcher Who's going to say no to a little kid with juice at their door? Like, Especially monsters. a kid that's cold calling. Like, yeah, that, exactly. that takes guts. <laughs> yes. But I, just, I was just thinking, why wait for customers to come to me? I'll go to them. You know, and I would just save up all my allowance. I would use my brother's money because if he was willing to spend it on me on for candy, then why not use his? And I would just save up everything. And, you know, there were also times where my mom would take me to um, Sears. And she would take me to the, the section that had toys and she would go to like, I wanted Barbies. And so she would take me to the Barbie section and she would say, okay, you can have one thing. And then I would really have to focus and choose purposefully. You know, it was a very conscious decision of what it was that I was going to get. But then there were times where my dad would take me to Toys R Us and I'll never forget this. It must have been like a father-daughter day or something because... I don't remember so many memories where it was just me and my dad. And he said, you can have anything you want in the store. And I thought, oh, my God. So I went and found a massive Dalmatian stuffed animal. It was like two sizes bigger than I was. And he's like, okay, great, we'll take that. And I took that thing everywhere with me. And I remember taking it to some kids on the block. I went to their house, and they threw it off the balcony and I was so upset because they didn't value it the way that I did because they didn't realize that, oh, her dad bought this for her and you know maybe she didn't spend as much time with her dad and that was really special to her. And that was my very first experience understanding that there are other people out there that just don't think the way you do, mm. you know? Mm. Do you still have the Dalmatian? No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and so when you got into high school, um, you began to create your communities and build these deeper relationships. Yeah. And how would you say that you changed from 
being a child and then going into high school. How do you witness your evolution? I was still quiet. I wasn't a very loud person. In private, I was loud. Um, but I would say that when it came to the evolution of who I was coming out of elementary school, I was still very timid and I was cautious about making the relationships because who knew when all of that was just going to be taken away. But I was there for the entire time. So each year I started making more and more connections. And then I ended up having pockets of different friends who weren't necessarily friends with each other. But I was that common thread. I was making connections with so many different types of people, different types of groups of friends. And I became a bit of a chameleon. And I don't really know the point in which that kind of started it was more so I think I was so starved for connections and having these like really deep friendships with people who nurtured the different sides of me that I just naturally ended up going down these different avenues of people Mm-hmm. And that didn't stop going into being an adult, going uh, into college, um, and then into like who I am today. Like I still have a lot of different pockets of friends, and I do my best to integrate them when I think it's appropriate. But I could go and hang out with, you know, group A to go to concerts and then I could go hang out with group B just to watch movies and group C to like, I don't know, just do something totally out of the norm. And I'm nourishing all sides of myself and they're also getting what they need from relationships. And I don't think you have to have just like a small group of friends. I think it's totally fine to have a lot of friends that are really close. Like if I had really big news to share, if something really big happened in my life, I would have to tell a lot of people because I do have a lot of very close friends and that's fine. Mm. You don't have to have just a core circle. No. And I, I think that it's important to have different groups of people who, like you said, um, nurture different sides of you. Um, but also so that you don't end up in groupthink all the time. Yeah. People who can give you alternative perspectives because they think in a very different way or their minds just work in a different way. Yeah. So I've always been an advocate of having different friends That's in fantastic. your life. Mm-hmm. I mean, I learn from these people all the time and they inspire yes. me in different ways. And um, it's uh, and sometimes, you know, the way that they think will make you sit and maybe make you feel uncomfortable and have yeah. make you have to think in a different way and that's important too for growth yeah so I agree with that I think you're absolutely correct and I think that if you choose to limit yourself to your relationships you're limiting your own personal growth mm. and others mm-hmm. exactly and uh so yeah I'm I very much resonate with with what you're saying um and you wanted to be an editor at a fashion magazine at oh, Elle. Gosh. I, oh. <laughs> I, I read that somewhere along the way. I wanted to be a fashion show producer. I wanted to be, my at one point, my dream job was to be the editor of Elle. I wanted to be a merchandiser, a stylist. I wanted to do so many things. And I will say that I got to do all of it. 100%. It wasn't for Elle, but it was in different facets of my career I did get to be in magazines. I wasn't the editor, but I also got to be the editor of like my own fashion site. And I think that took me down more directions than maybe something like being an editor at Elwood because I was in charge of 
my own site and my own destiny and, mm-hmm. and yeah. whatnot. Yeah. And so you took this really organic path in, in your career. Maybe we can just start with, yeah. with school. So it was you started off at Kwantlen first, but yes. then you ended up going to the Art Institute. I did, yeah. Kwantlen was just that like a default school for a lot of us. And my parents never really had that conversation with me about college because they knew I was going to go, but there was never a conversation about what college. But there was also never really a conversation through my high school career of, you know, where I wanted to end up. Because if I wanted to end up at UBC, then my high school career would have looked very different. Um, But I ended up going to Kwantlen, and only for about a year. I didn't even finish my program. It was two years, didn't finish it, took myself out of it. And then eventually went to the Art Institute. And that's where I took fashion marketing and management. And it was only a year and a half, and it was full-time, and it was robust. And I learned a lot, but I will say that most of what I took away from that was relationships. I wouldn't say that I really remembered a lot of what I learned in my school, but I still have those relationships and those connections ended up giving me more connections. And, you know, it's in fashion, it's really who you know. Truly, you can learn everything on the job. And I learned more than I did on the job than I did in school. Um, and then my career ended up taking me down my gosh, like just so many things. I said yes to everything. I still say yes to everything because mm. I don't know what it's going to give me. Mm. You like the adventure of that. I love it. I love the mm. unknown. I'm very much a risk taker. And if it feels good to me, then why not do it? Mm-hmm. Again, like why do you have to do just one thing? Just like you don't need to have one circle of friends. You could have many people. You don't have to do just one job. You can have many different things that you do. And You sound d- like a sponge, like your mom. Yeah. <laughs> You don't have to be so static and rigid. You can mm-hmm. say yes to lots of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then also knowing when to say no, too. Right? Yeah, exactly. But uh, no, I agree with you because you never know what life has to offer you with another person has to, to offer you. Yes. As long as you have the energy for it. Right. And you're yes. not it's not at the detriment of of yourself and, and your energy. It's not. And, you know, why not take a chance on yourself and on other people that make you feel good? Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, you're going to learn from it. And if it feels good, it's going to be good. Yeah. Yeah. I love the story about how you ended up being a visual merchandiser for <sighs> a little bit, because I feel like this is a really great example of your your tenacity. Um, so I'd love to, to have you tell the story of your time at Club Monaco and how that all unfolded. Yeah. And then also what you learned in the end about what you thought you wanted. Yeah, I really do like that story as well. And, you know, when I was in school, because I was doing so many internships, I was able to get a job by the end of my graduation that paid. And I wanted to be a merchandiser. But, you know, truthfully, I didn't really know what it took to be a merchandiser. They can only teach you so much in school. It's so different when you get into it. But I went to Club Monaco and I took my portfolio and I said I wanted to be a merchandiser. And the manager at the time, Brandy, she was so sweet and she was very receptive to me. And I think when you have good energy, people are just going to have good energy back. And um, she said that she was very um, impressed and she, she liked me. But unfortunately, there just wasn't a role for the merchandiser. It had already been filled. But, you know, if I ended up coming onto the floor, who knows what could open up. Um, And it is best that if you want to be a merchandiser, you do have to understand the customer and the brand and the store. So start on the floor. And I thought that was such a crock of shit because I just thought, like, you're just you you just want me to be a stylist. Like, you don't you're not going to ask me to be a merchandiser. But I said yes. 
because I knew that once she saw me work and she saw me interact with customers, they were just going to love me and <laughs> they were going to see that I can do a really good job. And if something does open up, then I can put myself up for it. I didn't have to wait for her to do it. So I started working and um, there's like top sellers. So uh, if you work there on the floor, you're considered, you're called a stylist, but everyone has a sales goal and you have to hit your sales goal. And there was top sellers and there was one person who was a top seller week after week after week. And I came in and I just like knocked that person right off the top sellers list week after week for an entire month. And they thought, okay, like, she needs to be doing more than just the sales. So they asked if I wanted to become a manager at the Pacific Center location. It was an all-women's location. And I said yes. Um, again, because I just thought, well, I'm one step closer to maybe getting to where I wanted to be. And then after um, a very short amount of time, the merchandiser actually ended up leaving. And they asked me if I wanted to take on the position. So I filled the role of a merchandiser for Pacific Center, but also the assistant store manager. And um, being a merchandiser is a lot of hard work. It's not just making a store look pretty. It's extremely analytical. It's a lot of numbers. And it's a lot of late nights. Um, and I wouldn't say I was I was good at it, but I wouldn't say I was particularly great at it. And it also wasn't a strength that I wanted to, sorry, it wasn't a skill that I wanted to strengthen. Mm. And I had realized that after about six months of doing it. Um, and it's always good to be able to put yourself in these situations because if I also didn't want to be a merchandiser, maybe I wouldn't have become a manager and understood what a managerial role feels like in managing a team of people. Or I wouldn't have become a stylist on the sales floor and had myself put in a position where I have to talk to people and I have to do sales. And now that I have my own store, I'm using all of those skills, being on the floor, talking to people, but also managing it and merchandising it. You know, it's all very much coming together for something that I didn't even know I was going to do later down the road. Mm. So I always think it's like, if you don't know a lot about something or you think you're going to be good at it, just try it. It's a building block. Yes. Everything is a building block. I'm curious to know you were saying that visual merchandising is really analytical. Yeah. And so I'd love to know more about that. In what ways is it analytical and, and numbers driven? Yeah. It's something I'm very green at. I have no idea. So... I'm more curious. Yeah, it's very, you know, also with buying, people think that being a buyer means going to all the fashion weeks and, you know, you're, you're swept away and you're discovering all these brands and you're bringing them back and you choose. But that's also like 90% of your time is in the office. So with um, merchandising, you have to look at all of the sales and you have to forecast, okay, let's say a set of sweaters is not moving. It's probably because of the way that it's merchandised or, you know, another reason. But for whatever reason, how can we make it sell? So then you have to look at all the numbers. You have to forecast how many you have in stock and what you can do. And then you you change the way that it looks. And then if that still doesn't sell, then you have to look back at the numbers. And so everything is in a store based on how it will sell. It's not just based on how it will look. And if you set up your store based on how it will look, that's not a strategy for success. And... I really just did not like math in school. It was just my most hated subject. I needed something that was more about feeling 
And merchandising is not about feeling. Merchandising is about hard data and how to make the data look good to a consumer. And mm. I just felt it was also very manipulative. <laughs> and I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't into that. And I quickly learned that this isn't something that I want to pursue. So let's take myself out of it. Mm, okay. And then after that, after being at Club Monaco, um, you eventually started to blog and you started to create content. I did, yes. yes. I had a blog. It started it in 2008 when I was in school. Um, so we actually had a PR class in school and one of our sessions was that we had to build a site on WordPress. And so I just did that for the assignment. And then when I graduated, I turned that site into an online portfolio so that when I went and had my interviews, they could just look at a website as opposed to like having my portfolio with me. And then eventually, once I started getting work, when I started working at Club Monaco, I no longer needed that portfolio site. And that naturally grew into just a, a, an average fashion website. I think I was, you know, grading runways in Paris, you know, because I'm so experienced and so skilled <laughs> to be grading the Paris runways. But then that turned into putting myself on the site and talking about my own life and my own sense of fashion and what I was wearing and that's kind of just where everything took off from there on well I'm thinking about how you're saying oh you know I was, I was grading the the fashion shows and we're, we're kind of you know sort of giggling about it but it, it is a way to start curating your tastes yeah right and making those tastes known to others um, and then you'll eventually find people who will want to know what you, you have to say and what you, you bring together. So it's so funny when the when WordPress and uh, – do you remember Blogspot? Cause oh, I, yeah, because that's yeah. what I was on originally. Yes, I had, I had a fashion blog called Confessions of a Fashion Fanatic, <laughs> and I started it when I was living in L.A., and I was doing the same thing. It was just a curation of what I was seeing in fashion. Yeah. But I'd also have these um, these sections that was like – photo of the day or song of the day and I would just start to curate them and funny enough I was just doing that for fun I was doing it because I loved it and I wanted to share the things that I loved and then um I got a very random message through through the blog spot site and it was from Hollywood Life and they were like hey we are liking what you're doing we've got this blogger position open would you consider it and I was like what that's cool <laughs> so I did that for probably a couple of years when I was in LA but um, you never know like again you never know what life is going to bring you if you don't take a chance or follow follow an intuition yeah and that's also a testament to you never know who's looking mm -hmm. and I know a lot of people won't want to do something because they think that no one's paying attention and everyone is paying attention. Even on Instagram, if someone doesn't follow you, I'm sure they're going and checking your profile. They're seeing what you're up to. There are people who are watching. And you don't know what you – whatever it is that you end up doing is going to end up in the hands or the eyes of someone else. And you don't know who they know and so on and so on. And so everything you do has a domino effect. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. And yeah, no, that's a great point. Like, it doesn't mean because someone's not following you, they're not seeing what you're doing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and so 
in conjunction with your blogging, you started your own agency too. Yeah. So well, I started CL in 2018, but you know, everything that I did came from the blog. Like it all just naturally progressed because even when I was doing artwork or styling or marketing or anything like that it all came because of the site because mm -hmm. I was able to create a community of people that had already wanted to support what I was doing that when I decided to do an agency and everything else I had already garnered an audience and a supportive community totally through your IC noise prints you yeah. were you were growing and we were chatting the other day I bought two I, I had you create two yeah. prints, and they were quotes. I actually um, remembered what quotes they, what they were. They? were. So one was um, a song lyric. From, oh, I remember this. Yes, from <laughs> Alexei Murdoch, um, and it was "My Salvation Lies in Your Love." And then the other one was uh, I. I always say her, her name wrong, but Anais Nin. Oh, I don't. I yeah. Don't it, anyways, yeah, it was a, a quote that she had, and it was, I, I must be a mermaid, Rango. I have no fear of depths and a great fear of shallow living. That's cool. Yeah. I'm glad I could put that for you in a very yeah. tangible sense. Yes, and I loved it because you, you did both, I think, in gold, yeah. which, yeah, I, I mean, I love gold, and so they're very special. I still have them. I love that. There are people who still have their prints, and they still love them just as much as they did when they first received them, and, you know, when you're creating, you create for yourself. You don't realize what it does for other people, um, and the fact that I was able to give people little little stints of happiness in their home whether they're just like walking by the hallway and they catch that glimmer of gold or something I think that's really really cool mm -hmm, absolutely and I I was thinking about what you were telling me about that I see noise chapter in your life yeah. and when it came to an end you just naturally knew that it was it was done because you had no more joy for it yeah. and I was thinking about that last night and I, and I thought to myself that's such a great um, skill I, th I feel like skill is the wrong word mm -hmm. but um, but just the ability to realize yeah. when something is finished yeah. and to move on from it you know that's a very interesting perspective because at times I see that as a coping mechanism as opposed to a skill because very much like relationships when you feel like they're coming to a close, they can either naturally end or you give it that final push. And with business and with icy noise, my artwork, it was very much the same. But just like with relationships, and I think this also came from my years in elementary school, not being able to make solid connections. If something turned or... I lost control or something or it didn't make me feel good I just shut that switch off mm. and that was my coping mechanism I'm fine I don't need to do this anymore and then I move on to the next thing and some people see it as a skill and it is if you use it for good but with the art it really was that I gave it everything I could I no longer enjoyed it and it was time to just move on to the next thing Mm -hmm. And I think that's the difference is that that 
what you said about understanding that you didn't enjoy it anymore. Yes. So for me, that seems less like a coping mechanism and just more of an intuition that why would you keep putting your energy into something that doesn't give you joy anymore? Yeah, and I think a lot of people out there also think that if something no longer works, you have to fix it and get it back on track um, or you failed. Mm. But that's not the case at all. You don't have to continue to do something if it doesn't make you feel good. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's just, it's like your soul dying yes. every every day. Every if day. You, yeah, if you, if you do that. Um, but you're in this exciting new chapter yes. of your career, which yeah. is going to be long and ever evolving. Um, and there was, there was a bit of a path to get there and it was through sustainability. But right now you have um, a vintage shop or a secondhand shop called Collective Will, yes, I do. which is beautifully curated everyone. So you need to go <laughs> to the shop. Um, but yeah, let's talk about this journey into sustainability and your life of low impact. Yes. So that had started so through the blogging. And again, like, you know, I always come back to the blog because it is where a lot of my avenues had stemmed so uh you know as a blogger you're given a lot of clothes and um, we would put together blogger clothing sales so that people who read our blog or followed us on instagram they could come and they could shop at our closets and i was uh, getting ready for one and i had removed upwards of 85 percent of my closet and i stood there in a massive pile of clothes and it was a like jolt to my system of what have I done? And someone, you know, listening to that might be thinking like, you didn't like, what's wrong? Like you have a lot of clothes, like, so what? But it was all clothing that I didn't ask for that was given to me that I then pushed on other people to consume when they didn't ask for it because I needed to keep the blog going or because I needed to get paid or, you know, what have you. And so now I'm left with all this synthetic clothing to sell. But what if I didn't do blogger clothing sales? What would I have done with that clothing? So I just felt a bit disgusted with myself that I had consumed so much. Um, and there was no purpose behind it except to tell other people to buy it. Mm. Um, and so I had that moment where I said to myself that something needed to change. And that's when I started to shop a bit more, you know, quote unquote, sustainably. I would choose local. I would choose really well made. I would choose less often. I would uh, try and retain items that were made from natural fibers as opposed to synthetic and just things that were timeless I could have for a long time as opposed to like these Forever 21 hauls and these H&M hauls. And now, you know, on YouTube, you see these Sheen hauls. And I'm so glad that I never got to that point. And then that slowly morphed into the beauty products that I used and consumed and then the cleaning products that we would use at home and then into the food that I ate and then eventually, you know, becoming pescatarian and then vegetarian and then vegan. And that was really hard. I think that was where my sustainability journey had like, um, like my, my journey and myself came to a head when I became vegan because I almost did it against my own will in a sense like like I said earlier I'm very like strong-minded and if someone tells me I can't do something I'm gonna do it and what turned out to be just like Alex my boyfriend joking being like I bet you can't stop eating meat to me saying oh yeah watch me and then not eating meat for like three years 
it wasn't coming from a, a very good place. It was coming from a place of resentment. And because I was doing so much um, around the house and with the clothing and everything, it was exciting, but it was also a lot. And I think a lot of people who dive really hard into their sustainable journeys, they um, forget the purpose of why they've done it. And I was uh, blogging everything that I was purchasing and, you know, sharing where people could buy really well-made products. And that was all really great. Um, And because it was new to other people, they were very responsive to it. And it was new to me. So I was excited about it. And when you're excited, other people get excited. But then it got to a point where I had realized that what I was doing wasn't sustainable for my life. Mm. And I needed to scale back and not do everything perfectly because that doesn't exist. And Alex would always say to me, bend, but don't break. You know, if you have no bags and you really need a bag, it's okay to just take the bag from the store if you forgot your reusables or whatever. And then you will remember to always bring your bags. This is just a learning experience. It's a bump. Just get over it. Bend, but don't break. Bend, take the bag, but don't break taking all the bags. And the same thing with being vegan. If you want to eat that cheese, eat the cheese. Bend but don't break. Because I became vegan for the sense of sustainability, not because of animal rights. And I think people become vegan for many different reasons and many different types of values. And that's what allows them to go a certain distance. Um, But for myself, I was doing things because I felt like it was the right thing to do and because I was sharing it and I was a bit in the public eye with what I was sharing I was so scared to break Mm. and I was scared to bend but if I didn't bend every now and then then the whole thing was going to fall apart and then like I'm a total fraud you know big house of cards big house of cards and so eventually I went back to eating meat and I do try my best to live a sustainable lifestyle and for me, that means doing certain things, but also not doing certain things so much. Mm-hmm. And with with the, the clothing, um, I love what you're doing. And I, you. I mean, I've always really loved secondhand and vintage. I've been um, I've been shopping that way for a really long time. Um, and uh, your curation is is really excellent. Like Thank you, you. You seem to know like what is quality. Um, but I, and I, maybe it's because I've been doing this for a long time. I can look at a rack and know like this person has a really good eye. They know, they know what to pull and what goes, goes together in this particular set. Yeah. Yeah. And do you think that is inherent to you or do you think that was learned through your merchandising days? Um, a little bit of both. And also thank you for the compliment. I think (laughs) it looks great too. Um, I would say a little bit of both. It's just my nature to want to make things look nice. Um, But it's funny that you say curation, and it is a curation, and other people look at it that way. But a curation would really be, if you looked at it, you would assume that it would just look cohesive. But for me, it's just a curation of things that I like. And I don't like to put my own individual style in a box. And I don't want to put anyone in a box who comes into my shop. I want people of all different walks of life and style and size and ethnicity and what have you to come in and find something that they like. Not because I've adhered to a very curated aesthetic. Mm. Things can look really good. 
They can be different and they can still look good together. And I want someone to come and see themselves in the shop because I have so many different facets of my style and I curate myself in a sense of just like, I want things to look nice and I do like certain things, but like one day I could be wearing a super feminine dress with heels and like gold jewelry. And then the next you could see me wearing like literally Alex's clothes or literally my dad's shorts and like a button down. And I think a lot of us have different facets of ourselves and we try to curate ourselves so much that we put ourselves in a box and I don't want anyone to be in a box. Mm. So mm -hmm. just like what you like. Mm. Where does the name come from? Collective will. Yeah. I actually heard Joe Biden say just collective will in a sentence during one of his speeches while he was running. And I, when I heard it, it was something that clicked in me like, yes, collective will it's the collective will of the people it's for the greater good it's everyone coming together for the positive nature of our society and with secondhand clothing I want it to be people coming together and choosing a better option um, for the betterment of our country and just our earth mm -hmm. and there's something beautiful about uh, a really well-made item being passed down through through the years yeah. so whenever I um, buy a piece I'll always come home and I'll I'll cleanse it like I'll, I'll sage it but as I'm I'm cleansing it I always thank the person who loved it before me because that person did have it and even though they may have given it up for whatever the reason is um, you know they they chose it in the beginning and so yeah there's something um, nice about being able to extend the yeah. The love and care of, of something. I do love that. And even if they didn't choose it for themselves and someone else did, there is still an intention behind each piece. Mm -hmm. And we don't know what that intention is. And if it made the person who purchased it feel really good, then that's really special. Yeah. You know, whether it was, oh, someone's going to love this, I'm going to gift it to them, or I'm going to treat myself and buy this for myself. I, I think that's really special. Yeah. I, I once found so. this diamond ring at the flea market, and it still had... Um, the woman's initials on the inside. So beautiful. I really love that. And um, so I, I had a guest on here. He's a few episodes ago, and he has a, a rare bookstore in, in Gastown, and he's got a lot of first edition books and um, and discovered him with, with my friend Pearl um, just randomly. Anyways, I was telling him, the, the shop owner, Richard, that I there was a period where I really loved going to secondhand bookstores and looking at old books and looking at the inside oh, cover yeah. <laughs> to see what notes people had written others, especially if the book was a gift. And I just love that. There was something so poetic and romantic. And to your point, there was an intention of why that book was given yes. to the, the person who received it. So Did you ever watch Serendipity, the movie? Yes. Do you remember oh when she gives yes. the book and inside is the phone number yes oh my gosh that movie I haven't thought of it in a long time but yeah no exactly exactly um I want to take a sharp like left here sure. um because you and I have a lot have had a lot of sort of mystical and and esoteric conversations yes. and I love um, them. yes me too and you um you said that it's not as strong but you had a period where you had synesthesia yes yeah so I had really like developed the sense of it in my late teens to early 20s and I was lucky at the time to have been in a relationship with someone who had also developed it and so we were able to experience music and art and color and whatnot in a very unique way together but um, 
I, I, I think I subconsciously have chosen not to lean in to it so much because it can kind of take a hold of my decisions or it can kind of fog my sense of focus. Mm. Um, you know, like for myself, when I would hear music, then it would translate to color, but it was very much um, connected to words and numbers and letters. And so that would kind of take my focus away from something. You know, you're kind of going down this like sensical journey that you don't have control over, but I've suppressed it because there were so many other things top of mind that I needed to focus on, but it does creep up every now and then, you know, even if someone says the color green to me, so I'm not sure what other people see, but for myself, it actually comes up as like a very specific font and like a very specific word and it has pattern and texture and whatnot. And that will creep up every now and then. And I kind of giggle because it's, you know, my, my brain is doing something and it's really creative and it kind of, you know, changes my narrative for that single moment. But then I, I do tuck it away. Mm. Do you think you'll unearth it at some point? Maybe for something specific, you know, maybe if I chose to pick up a paintbrush or if I chose to do something again that really um, submersed me in color or in sound. Um, I guess you could say in a sense, you know, curating the collections that I have at the shop kind of do that. But I'm so focused on just the individual pieces that mm. it's it's more so sound for me anyways. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know you've come in for a couple of sound sessions and yeah. you've talked a lot about color that that you were seeing in conjunction with sound, which um, I always love that when when people bring that up. Yeah. Yeah. There was one moment um, with my boyfriend at that time, we decided to put on Strobe by Dead Mouse, oh. and we took a canvas and we we cut it down the middle and then we put a like a, a border between us so we couldn't see and we said okay we're gonna paint and we're gonna see what comes out of it and you took away the border and it looked like one painting no way yeah we chose wow. the exact same colors we blended them the same way we had the same accents it was it was beyond yeah wow it was wild yeah that is super wild and, and very magical I mean it you saying that just makes me think that everything and everyone are connected. Yeah, I believe it. I mm -hmm. truly believe that. Mm -hmm. I read somewhere that um, you you believe that your sort of um, inner self journey began when you were a child. Yeah. But you didn't realize it was really happening until you were 27. But then the full unfolding, the true unfolding of it um, really struck you when you were 32. And mm -hmm. I'd love to know when you think about your inner self journey and with where you're at right now, what's your relationship with it? Um, I think I'm much more comfortable with myself and with my decisions and just with what I've done in my life in general. I, I choose not to look back at the things that I've done and um, did not finish as failures, but they were just many successes on my way to something bigger. And the relationships that I developed have either strengthened or have lessened and those were all for very specific reasons as well because you know you also make relationships at different times of your life and they're for different reasons and it's okay to let go of those ones but I would say you know from 27 to 32 that was like a very big time for me to ask myself what do I want 
and what's important to me and for my life and for my career and um, for the people around me mm. as well. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, your actions affect everybody else. Right, so. right. Hmm. Um, just a couple more questions because yeah. I know you're a little bit tight on time. But um, you mentioned to me in our last conversation that for a very long time you didn't feel seen or heard yeah and I'd love to know what makes you feel seen and heard and do you feel that now there are still moments in my life where I don't feel seen or heard and you know when I talk to just people around me that they're just not listening to me you know like I've just been saying this the whole time and you're not listening and I also have to remind myself that this does say more about them than it does myself. But growing up and being, you know, a kid who's constantly bullied mentally and physically from just other people at the schools and having to recreate relationships or, you know, this is no fault of my parents and I love them so deeply, but they were busy and they were creating a life for my brother and I and for themselves and for the rest of the family. And there were just moments where I would just feel like I'm not being heard and I'm not being seen and I'm kind of feeling like I'm going along this life journey alone. And I still kind of feel like that sometimes. If I think a lot of people kind of feel misunderstood and it can be a different degree of misunderstanding. And I, uh, yeah, you know, yeah, I'm not really sure what else to say from that. I just kind of feel like it comes and it goes, and I think a lot of people can relate to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the not being seen, I was able to take control of it through the through the blog, you know, because people are reading what I'm saying. They can't just interrupt me. Mm. And so I would feel very heard if someone would respond to either a post or to um, a blog post. Uh, blog post because they heard me they Mm. totally took in what I said they can't just turn their head and look the other way or interrupt me or stop and look at their phone you know Mm -hmm. so and it can create a dialogue you know once once that once that happens yeah exactly Mm. and I I do I agree with with what you're saying that you know a lot of us feel misunderstood and again no fault of parents or you know are growing up and there comes to be a point in your in your adult life where you almost have to be the one to see and hear yourself. Yeah, exactly. And just acknowledge all of those things within you. Exactly. You know, when I like really became comfortable with who I am and like doing this journey was when I started to watch RuPaul's Drag Race. Hmm. Because I think I picked it up in 2018 because it came out on Netflix. And I have always considered myself an ally to the community but I didn't really understand, I guess, what that meant until I started watching more about the show and then watching more documentaries about the LGBTQ plus IA community. And I started to realize, you know, they've been through so much and they have become so comfortable with themselves. And wow, that is so cool. And so then I started to realize, you know, I am my own person as well. I'm different in subtle ways not to the same degree, but if they can be so comfortable with themselves, why can't I be comfortable with myself? And the more that I also surrounded myself with people in the community, I was able to feel very welcomed and also very nurtured for who I am. And that feels really great. 
Mm. Um, and uh, I think however you can find yourself in any community, I think you should hold on to that. Absolutely. And also doing that for others. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My second to last question. Um, if your parents were in the room with you right now, yeah. what would you want to say to them or what would you want them to know about what it was like for you growing up and yeah. observing who they were? You know, I would first say thank you because they really did create a life for us and they did everything that they possibly could and I am who I am today because of them. Um, I wish that they were around a little bit more, but again, it was just a different time. It was the 90s and, you know, kids were out with other kids doing their own thing or they were with, you know, grandparents and family and parents were working. And at the time of being a kid, I wish that they were around more. I wish we had more photos together. We don't have enough photos. I was the second child and I feel like that kind of falls to the wayside a bit. Um, I wish we had more memories together, but they're not gone and I'm not gone. And so there is still time to create those memories, just like with the baklava or, or what have you. But I, I, you know, I love them and I want to thank them for everything that they created for us because even to this day, they still create space for us. So. Mm, that's really beautiful. My last question that I ask everyone, with what you do, what do you want to leave behind in the world? Happiness. And um, I want to leave behind happiness and I want people to remember that they can just be comfortable with who they are, either when I come in contact with them or when they hear this. Um, I'm getting a little emotional. You know, sometimes I think about um, what would happen if I died? And what would people think? And how did I make them feel? And I know that people would gather around and they would share stories and I know that they would feel good. And that's what I want to leave behind. Mm. That's so wonderful. You do those things, and your presence in the world is so needed. And thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for listening. Of course, and for being here today. I'm so excited to see all the things that you continue to create. And uh, popping into your shop, everyone pop into Randa's shop. Please she do. just did a, a reno. Yes, it uh, looks beautiful. It looks great. It's really bright and light and airy. And uh, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, May. I can't wait for more conversations like this. Same. I always love talking to you. <laughs> I, and me with you as well. Thank you. Much love to you. You too. If you enjoyed that last conversation, be sure to check out more episodes with Craft on Spotify and guest photo galleries on the website at wearethecraft.com. Thanks again for listening.